Good afternoon, everyone. You are tuned in to uclaradio.com. This is The Menu, UCLA Radio's premier food show, talking everything culinary, everything tasty. I'm one of your hosts, Henry. Uh, I am joined by a guest host. Your your regular host, Beliz, is out on birthday leave. Um, so I'm joined by a guest host. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. I'm the irregular host. My name is Porter. Thank you for joining us, Porter. Of course. I'm excited. Today, we have a very special guest. We are going to be talking with Jody Lowe, who is a farmer's market coordinator for the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, uh, one of California's, if not the country's, Best Farmer's Markets, according to many sources, I did my research, um, an estimated 900,000 customers visit these markets every year, uh, and they are responsible for supplying some of the most renowned LA chefs and restaurants with fresh and local produce on a weekly basis. Jody is also responsible for managing the Santa Monica Farmer's Market's Sunday Main Street Market, as well as being the volunteer and internship coordinator, graphic designer, publicity rep, and... A lot more things, I assume. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jody. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Um, yeah, so today we are going to be talking all things farmer's markets, uh, Farmers, why farmer's markets are really integral to food and food and local food in L.A. and Santa Monica. Um, as you learn, they are very important. Um, but first, we're going to ask our weekly question that we do every week. Uh, what did you have this week to eat? What did you make this week? Um, that sort of thing. Would somebody like to start something? I can, I can start because okay. my answer is boring. Um, I was like feeling on the brink of a cold this week. I couldn't tell if it was allergies or cold, so I wasn't that exciting with my food. Um, so I was eating a lot of soup, but I did make my own penne al vodka from scratch, and it was actually really good and really easy and made like five nights worth of leftovers, which... It's really fantastic. So that was like my big accomplishment with some like nice roasted vegetables on the side. It was really good. But a lot of home cooked meals this week. Perfect. Yeah, what that, about you, Jay? That, that sounds delicious. <clears throat> I'm coming over to your place to eat. <laughs> um, well, I actually am still sort of recovering as well from being sick um, and just get, getting back into the cooking mode. And I do tend to do a lot of home cooking every week and a bunch of meal prep at the beginning of the week. So... I made a clear your refrigerator out frittata, <laughs> which included bacon and spinach, a bunch of eggs, some cream, and um, I think I had some leftover arugula, threw in some onions and garlic. Super easy. Frittata is one of my favorite go-tos to just clean all those vegetables out of the fridge. And then... I also had all these herbs that I had intended to use for something else, and they were, you know, getting kind of wilty, and I thought, let's just make a pesto. So basic formula for pesto. I cut up all the herbs. I had mint and um, parsley and cilantro, and I threw them in a blender, added some lemon and lime juice, some pine nuts, and some olive oil and salt, and I've put it on everything. Mm. I topped my chicken with it. I topped fish. I put it together some cream sauce for pasta, threw it in there last night, added some of the leftover fish from a night before. And then you're, you guys are really going to like this answer. <clears throat> because I had a sweet tooth, 
I made cookies mm-hmm. and I brought you some. <gasps> best, <laughs> best, no the best, way. the best, the best. So this, this recipe is a modified recipe from Gourmandy's Cooking School, oh. who you both I think are familiar with in Santa Monica, and they're one of our strategic partners. And they are oatmeal raisin chocolate. Yes, I'm a huge oatmeal raisin yes, fan. I'm Plus excited. chocolate, come on. <laughs> so I brought you each two. Thank you so much, Jody. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess I should have mentioned both of us have passed some integral context here. Yeah, we, uh, Jody was our boss yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for a year. A total, yeah, a whole oh, year. yeah, a year at least. Um, so yeah, at, at the we we're both interns at the San Marco Farmers Market. Um, yeah, we had a great experiences. So um, thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you guys were great interns. It was always such a pleasure to work with you both specifically. And uh, (laughs) Porter did communications and marketing and some design for us. And Henry, Henry had his hands in everything, volunteer coordinating, a little bit of analytics, some design work. Um, What else did you do? You did so much because you you were with us through the summer as well. Porter was was with us through the school year and you were Mm -hmm. with us through an entire 12 months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a great learning experience. Um, As far as what I had this week, um, I went to Rosselbach, which is a German, a new German, German restaurant and beer hall um, in Mar Vista. Mm. Um, Had a sausage and German spatzel. Uh, with dill, which is really great. Spatzel is German egg noodle, really unique. The first time I had it, it I was at uh, California Adventure, and I had it at their restaurant there. Uh, and I was like, what is this weird pasta thing? And it was spatzel. And then, of course, Brussels sprouts. It was tasty. Got a, a beer, a German-American beer. It was good. Um, and then I, earlier, or late last week, I had... Um, uh, a wonderful dinner, home-cooked dinner, not produced by me, but by a friend. Um, this was probably one of the best dinners I've had made by someone of my age. Um, they made cheese puffs, um, olive tamponade with capers. There was roast lamb, shallot rice, cucumber salad, blanched green beans, um, and then the most incredible cream cheese and yogurt dessert with honey and graham cracker crust and thyme. Um, that was fantastic. It was like a wonderful dinner, um, wonderful home environment. Um, that was really, really fun. And then I've been making lots of Japanese curry lately. Ooh, yum. Yeah. That's been my go-to lately. Um, yeah. Um, that is what we had this week. Um, hope it got you uh, excited to go try some good stuff. Um, we're going to get into our interview. Um, so, Jody, what... In in your during your childhood, um, what was sort of your food background um, and or your experience with food either at home or going out? Sure, yeah. So, <clears throat> I I had a lot of interaction with food, you know, throughout my whole childhood. Both sides of my family, both my mom's side and my dad's side, have a rich history in cooking and home cooking and just enjoying food in general. So my mom's side is primarily English, Welsh, and German. So we get a lot of the the European and um, uh, influenced foods in that family. So Spatzel's right up my alley. <laughs> um, I always grew up having home-cooked meals for the most part, although we ate out um, you know, once or twice a week perhaps, but 
a lot of home-cooked meals. And then my dad's side is Chinese-American from Hawaii. And so we had a lot of different Asian influences from that side. And in addition to that, both of my families were very interested in food production. And I think it was, you know, both a generational and a cultural thing. So in Hawaii, my dad grew up growing all kinds of food um, to the point where they would... um, they would do grafting on trees and that sort of stuff. So um, so we just always kept our own gardens. And a lot of the food came from that. <clears throat> and my mom, having grown up in Northern California, I always call it a granola and crunchy. <laughs> so at the time, you know, this was in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, and processed food was really more popular. And my mom was really dedicated to cooked from scratch or whole foods. And so it was a lot of, you know, whole grain breads, um, and, and foods just made from scratch on a daily basis. I would have home-cooked lunches that went to, with me to school, and um, so many of my family memories and, and social connections were around the dinner table or around food. Mm. Uh, can you uh, describe a little bit more about um, any of your uh, any of the culinary in- influences um, from your dad's side, and that's really interesting to me, the Chinese-American and Hawaiian, is, was there any sort of influence that incorporated into your lifestyle or tastes um, now or when you were younger? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I eat all sorts of foods. I'm not super picky. <laughs> I mean, I like high-quality food, but, you know, I'll also eat fast food every once in a while. Um, so, yeah, in Hawaii, it's a really, it's a really uh, diverse culture there and a lot of different ethnicities, but a lot of um, diversity within Asian culture. So while my dad's side is Chinese, there's a lot of Japanese influence in Hawaii, there's Korean influence, there's Portuguese influence. And so, and then there's the native Hawaiian influence as well. So I grew up eating sashimi and poke and um, going to have dim sum in San Francisco at some of the you know best dim sum restaurants in the country. Um, <clears throat> and um, we, in fact, I have one memory when I was growing up, we had a, a block party with the neighbors on the block and my dad and one of the other neighbors decided to do a luau pig. And if you're not familiar with that, what that means is they dug a giant hole in the ground, put a bunch of coals there and then wrapped a whole pig in wire and in either banana leaves or something like that. They stick it in the ground, cover it up and let it cook for hours. And it's, it's amazing. And so, you know, that's one of my, my earliest childhood memories around a party with a Kahlua pig, which is, you know, very traditional in Hawaii. Um, and, you know, just my, my grandmother as well on that side, she was a short order cook and she, she cooked everything. I mean, she was just amazing. There are so many traditional dishes that, that I remember. One in particular called Jai. And it's a Asian monk's food. It derives from a time when the monks would beg from door to door for food and people would put food in their bowls and it, you know, just would become the sort of stew. And so how it's made today, and it's vegetarian and vegan. And so today it's made with bamboo shoots and these glass noodles and a bunch of different, all kinds of different mushrooms and fungus and um, lotus flowers and ginkgo nuts, and it, I call it Chinese spaghetti. <laughs> so that's another one of my very traditional um, foods from that side of the family. Did you have any uh, connection with farmers markets before, or or 
perhaps growing your own, well, farmer's markets before you took this position? Yeah. Um, you know, I had, I had some connection with farmer's markets and not so much in my growing up years. Um, I, I don't, in fact, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, I don't recall any farmer's markets in my early childhood years. There may have been some, but we weren't frequenting them um, at that time. <clears throat> so I think my my primary recollection of farmer's markets is when I moved down to Southern California, which was, um, gosh, nearly 20 years now. I intended to stay here for a year, and here I am 20 years later. Um, and the Santa Monica Farmer's Market on Wednesday, which is one of four, as you know, um, was one of the, the biggest influencers, that along with the market that I manage today, which is the Sunday market on Main Street. And so the the Wednesday market really impacted and influenced me in terms of the variety of food and the number of farmers and the sheer size of the actual market. But the one that really spoke to my heart was the Sunday market. Mm. And I lived in that neighborhood at that time. And it was my Sunday ritual. And it became my communal living room. And what I found moving to Los Angeles, which is a city where I had no family, is I was really hungry for community. And it felt to me, this is not everybody's experience, but it felt to me that the city was was very sort of disenfranchised and split and people were commuting and it was hard to connect and everybody's so busy doing their hustle. And so I, I was really longing for community and connection and that's where I found it, you know? So it was really, that market in particular was more about the social connections and, you know, my my social world than it was specifically the farmers. Mm-hmm. That was the added benefit. <laughs> um, and so I think that was really my first introduction to farmer's markets. That's, I mean, I think I definitely agree. I, when I at least started interning at the farmer's market, I was really shocked at how much it brought a sense of community to it because I think from the outside, when you think of a farmer's market, you're like, okay, cool, I can go buy something and then I'm out of there. But it's so much more like you're walking around, you're interacting, you're seeing people you're all kind of in this enclosed space that creates like a really beautiful community uh, in that sense. Um, so kind of going off of that, just this idea that farmers markets are more than just a collection of people selling food. Like if you could just give like a really brief rundown on like what goes into running a farmer's market, because I think there's so much more behind the scenes, even more than just what we saw as interns. I mean, we got a good glimpse in, but there's so much going on always that if you could just touch a little bit on that. Okay, let me let me try and keep it brief because <laughs> you're right. It it is a lot more complex than first glance, and I think even coming into this particular career, um, it was it's way more complex than I ever anticipated. And as the world's become more complex, likewise has this particular industry. So, you know, obviously there's there's the basic logistics. How do the farmers get to the market? How do you select the farmers that are going to participate? How do you establish safe operating practices if you're doing a street closure? You know, how do you keep the people who are attending the farmer's market, not just the vendors, but the customers, safe? Um, you know, so that's just baseline. How, how do you establish what the, the layout is going to be and who's going to participate and how that's all going to work? Um, and then there's the marketing of it. How do people know about you? You know, are you, do you have a website? Everybody's so digital these days. Do you have a presence on Instagram, Facebook, social media platforms, which we do? (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, and I'll just do a little plug. You can follow us at Santa Monica Farmers Market on Facebook or SMFMS on Instagram and Twitter. They're very entertaining social media accounts. <laughs> Highly recommend. <laughs> Thanks, Porter. We do try to do a lot of uh, live posts from the market and live video and, and all of that. And that is one of my, my passions as well is the social media and the marketing aspect of, of my job. Um, and so there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of pre-planning and thinking about what are the themes that we want to promote. Um, and and to couch all of that, you know, what is our strategic goal? Why does the farmer's market exist? Why are we there? Now, our markets are somewhat different than others in that we're run by the government. We're a department of the city of Santa Monica. And the vast majority of farmer's markets in the state are nonprofit. So we have that extra layer of this is a resident benefit and particularly the city has a focus on being um, a sustainable city of well-being so you know what is our impact environmentally are we considering the environmental impact of the vendors we're choosing how far they're coming what are their growing practices are they certified organic or are they using conventional growing methods or pesticides um, we don't allow for genetically modified organisms in, the, in our farmers markets um, so you know, and that's just scratching the surface. Okay. That's not even getting into, uh, you know, the billing and the finance side and um, and the staffing. And then, of course, our amazing interns and interns and volunteers. And then how are we integrated into the community? You know, beyond, like Porter was saying, beyond just that being a place where people can purchase something. What does it mean to have a farmer's market? What, what role do we play in enhancing the well-being of our residents, both from um, you know a physical and consumption standpoint, an economic standpoint, being equitable, equitably accessible. For example, we accept food stamps at all of our farmers markets. We have an additional program that matches those food stamps at our Saturday uh, farmers market at, in Virginia Avenue Park. But also, you know, what is the what is the mental and emotional experience of the market? Is it pleasurable? Are there spaces and room for people to make those social connections, to enjoy or possibly learn something? So who are we allocating space to create, help create that? Um, so we do have additional activities in addition to the actual farmers selling. We do cooking demonstrations to help people learn how to use the produce. We do tours of the markets where we talk about some of this background information. We work closely with the Office of Sustainability in Santa Monica to, for example, reduce plastic bag use. That's one of our promotions right now, to bring your own mug to fill it up for coffee so you're not using plastic or plastic lids. So I, I could really go on and on, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, that, that's the brief synopsis <laughs> for you. <laughs> well, there's still a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah. Tons of questions. Um, you did talk a little bit about criteria for choosing vendors, um, I know that uh, it's really competitive at your markets for vendors. Um, what are you really looking for in a premier vendor? How do you um, know that a vendor is right for your markets? And I'm curious if um, taste or um, I don't, goodness of product is, is a part of that criteria. Yeah, that's a great question. So the market essentially is divided into two categories, the farmer section, which is overseen by the Department of Agriculture, and what we call the community event section, which is where we have other activities and types of vendors. So I'll speak first to the farmer section. 
So um, the state has specifications as to who can participate in a farmer's market. And so just baseline, any farmer participating in a certified farmer's market has to be certified by the Department of Agriculture in the county where they're growing. They cannot buy product from somewhere else and resell it. They actually have to grow it themselves, and it has to be grown in the state of California in order to participate in our programs. And in addition to that, the Department of Agriculture here in Los Angeles, where our farmers markets are, they come and audit our markets and our farmers at the, mar at the market on a quarterly basis to ensure that integrity. So, you know, that's just baseline. Are you growing the product? Is it in the state of California? Then when we're selecting a farmer in the market, it's a very dynamic environment. Um, and our farmers markets are already very, very established. They've been running for over 36 years. And so we have vendors that have been with us for that entire time. Yeah, very long time. We've seen, you know, multiple generations come through and pass away and have children and have grandchildren and get married and, you know, all of these life events. And so first, it's very rare that we have an opening. When we do, we're looking at the existing mix of products within the market to see, are there gaps? So, for example, at the Main Street Farmer's Market right now, I don't have anybody growing mushrooms. So, but I do have three farmers selling citrus and avocado. So if I had a space available, I wouldn't be looking to bring in another citrus and avocado vendor. I'd be looking to bring in somebody with mushrooms or something else that already isn't represented in the market. Perhaps grains or rice, those are also grown in limited quantity in California. So that would be the second level of consideration is what are the needs of the market to build diversity but I like that you addressed quality as well, and that can be somewhat subjective. Mm -hmm, absolutely. You know, what you like isn't necessarily, from a taste standpoint, going to be the same thing that I like. So we would be looking to see if a farmer is adding value in terms of additional varietals. So say I have one of everything represented in a market, but this one particular farmer grows, you know, um, a certain variety of a tangerine like a Tahoe and another farmer grows um, a gold nugget. You know, so those aren't necessarily the same fruit, right? It's a different varietal. So, and there are farmers that specialize in specialty fruit growing and special varieties that, one, you don't find at grocery stores because they're not necessarily mm. commercially viable from a transportation standpoint. Um, but so I think that, that really is, as a market manager, my second consideration is, is it building out the varietals and providing customers choices in terms of what they can get from different regions of California. So we could have a citrus and avocado grower coming from San Diego, but their product, even though they might grow the same varietals, is going to be different because of the terroir or the, you know, microclimates. We have so many microclimates in California than somebody growing in Ventura County. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> we also go visit the farms. We look at their growing practices. Um, we don't necessarily prioritize certified organic over non-certified organic. Now you're going to ask me why. Mm, why? <laughs> <laughs> because there are farmers that are utilizing organic or better growing practices, but for one reason or another have not certified. Um, in fact, that's to say we have farmers that used to be certified organic, and they've decided to stop certifying. Um, the certification process is very onerous. It's costly, and there is a lot of paperwork involved. And so some farmers, once they have an established client following, they 
they will just not renew their certification. And it's not that they've changed their growing practices. So Porter was again talking about that social benefit. One of the benefits socially and from um, a learning standpoint is you can talk to the farmer. They're at the market. You don't get to do that at the grocery mm -hmm. store, <laughs> you know? So you can actually ask them, what did you put on this particular plant to enhance the size or the flavor or to de de deter pests or to, um, you know, keep disease away? And, you know, hopefully they're answering honestly. <laughs> and I think the vast majority of them do. You know, they're looking you in the eye and having a conversation. So those are some of the factors. <laughs> I think, I think that really highlights also like how incredible it is to buy food at a farmer's market versus going to a store because you're really getting a more holistic experience in that sense. And the farmers really do love talking to you. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I would be at the Wednesday market, which is huge, then every day there'd be something new and something new to learn. And you can just, half the time you're just spending around talking to people, learning about what they're doing. And if they have something new with them, like that's a whole other opportunity to talk about. And so I think that just even more highlights just all that goes into planning it, all that goes into like making it work, all that goes into creating the community because it's more than just the food. It's what goes into that food. It's the people behind the food. It's the people buying the food. Yeah. Um, and I think the community you create attracts a certain community in that sense as well. Yeah, it, it definitely, I think it has a natural, and I'll use the word organic attraction um, <laughs> for a certain customer that has a particular mindset and you know, so some of our job is really reaching out to those other customers as well that don't have that mindset, don't know. You know, we get we have kids classes that visit the market on field trips during the school year. And there are kids, you'll show them produce, tomato versus an apple, which one grows on a tree, and they won't know. And so that just speaks to that a lot of people still are so removed from where their food is produced, how their food is produced. And I do strongly believe in farmer's markets to break down those barriers and the passion of the farmers, you know, they put so much hard work into what they do. They're so susceptible to the weather and the soil and, you know, just mother nature and they're very proud people. And so when you go to the market, they want to share what they've grown. Mm -hmm. They're super excited about this new product. They want you to taste it. And as you develop those relationships, you know, as soon as you walk up, they're like, hey, I've got this new great thing. Check this out. And they're just, they're so enthusiastic about it. And it, it's definitely contagious. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, your, your um, food stamp program, um, but there definitely is a common sort of uh, misconception that farmers markets are inaccessible because um, they're pricey. Um, what do you do to combat that mentality that I don't think is as big now, but definitely was a few years ago? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that people, um, I, I think that some of that has been dispelled a bit. Um, we had an intern mm -hmm. <laughs> who did a study. Her name was Emma, or is Emma. She also was a UCLA student. She's graduated. Um, and she did a comparative study where she took 16 different commodities at the Wednesday Farmer's Market and compared them, uh, translated their prices down to weight so that they, she could be comparing apples to apples, and compared them with produce from a variety of local grocery stores. And what she found is that it really depends. It depends what's in season when. It depends 
um, mostly mostly in the, the seasonal aspect. You know, so when something's in high season and it's available, it's not as um, it's not as scarce. Then the prices are going to go down. And so, I always just I challenge people to do their own research as well. Check it out for themselves. Like go to the grocery store. How big is that bunch of kale at the grocery store versus how big is the bunch of kale at the farmer's market when it's in season? And, and kale is in season mostly year-round, but it's in great production in the winter um, and the spring. So, you know, and you have to, you really have to price compare. Yeah. Um, I also think when you were saying before about when we were talking about creating a community and how it does attract a certain person, but it's all about bringing in those who maybe aren't necessarily in your stereotypical representation of who comes to the markets, I think that almost goes kind of hand in hand with really showing that it can be economically accessible to mm-hmm. everyone, at least try to make it that way. And I think that you guys are doing a really good job with that. And it's something that I don't necessarily see in markets other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just emphasizing the idea that it is a part of the community. It's for the community. Um, maybe you don't have to drive to the grocery store. You just walk down the street with your family yeah. and you can go get your food. And I think it, it just creates this whole well-rounded view on getting food yeah. and where you're getting it from. And, and lifestyle around it for sure. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, if you're even moving the needle a little bit, right, you don't have to source everything from the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be all the way to one side of the spectrum or another. Um, you know, it can be maybe you go to the farmer's market once a month and you pick out something that you're familiar with. It's not like, oh, that's a kohlrabi. What's a kohlrabi? <laughs> what do I do with a kohlrabi? That thing's like looks like an alien turnip or something with leaves coming out of it. And, you know, pick some oranges. Do a taste comparison. Try, you know, the, try a tangerine from the grocery store versus a Tahoe or you know, one of the other tangerine varieties that you won't find in the grocery store. Um, and do the test for yourself. And then share it with a friend or do it with a friend. <laughs> Better yet. Yeah, I think I, I challenge everyone listening <laughs> to just give it a try. Because you don't know until you try. And then I feel like once you live the experience, you're more likely to go back. Yeah, and uh, you, you have a farmer's market here on campus. We exactly. do. Right? So you have, you have full Start access. Here. Start here. Get it in before you graduate. It's really yeah. good. They have really good citrus and yeah. apples and dried fruit and stuff here. And absolutely. the Westwood Farmer's Market. Yeah, true. Also. Yep, absolutely. They're, they're everywhere. <laughs> um, continuing down the line of just maybe some s- challenges that we all face when working in a situation like this, do you have any other challenges that you faced as a manager or even just as a, a woman, just in a leadership role in general, um, if you want to touch on that? Sure. Where do I even start? So, mm-hmm. so I've had a 13-plus year career in farmer's markets and specifically with the city of Santa Monica farmer's markets. But I have, I have a wide variety of experience that came before that as well, including working at UCLA. Um, and I've worked in every, pretty much every sector, sector that there is banking, home health care. Um, <clears throat> you know, I do think that, so just as a person, before I address the the being female and looking potentially younger, people say I look younger <laughs> than I actually you am. Thanks. You know, I think one of the, the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is how do you navigate the politics of an organization and the culture and how do you determine if the culture is a good fit? And, you know, you both are getting ready to graduate, right, this spring. I'm so excited for you guys. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited to see where you guys go. <laughs> um, but, you know, that this transition out of college into work life and 
it, it can be a rough transition. And how do you know that the organization's right for you? And for my experience, it just comes from diving in and trying on different things, seeing what fits, um, you know, and, and being kind with yourself through that process. Um, you know, I've evolved a lot in this position and in through my other positions as well. But because I've been in this position for so long in the same organization, I think the biggest evolution has been where I am now. Um, you know, and I've stepped in it. I've definitely <laughs> over the life of my career. There's times when I look back and I go, yeah, if I had that to do again, maybe I would have kept my mouth shut. Maybe I would have, you know, tried to get somebody else's perspective before taking some action. And yet at the same time, I learned from those situations. So I, I'll say just in general, you know, my sophistication around diplomacy has increased tremendously. Um, my ability to communicate, my um, stepping away from making assumptions and asking more questions has definitely increased. Um, my ability to do research, my ability to let things go. That's, that's a tough lesson, right? Because as you heard, there's so much going on and I'm so passionate about it and I could just drown myself in work 24 seven and you guys probably find that in school, right? At some point you have to say, this is good enough, you know, or this isn't gonna happen because I also have to take, make sure that I'm balancing my well-being so that I can continue to work over the length of my career and not burn myself out. Um, so, and, and as a woman, this is just my experience, um, you know, in an industry that still is primarily dominated by men, meaning the farmers, um, what I found is that coming into the market when I did, there was a lot of disorganization to begin with. And um, I looked very young I, I was young, <laughs> but I also looked very young. <clears throat> and so I I was in a position where I had regulatory responsibility. There was um, compliance with health code, which has real-life implications for the health and well-being of our customers. If somebody is not doing something right, somebody can get food poisoning, you know, or they really could get sick. And so I had to give direction to all of these different vendors, and, you know, of which up to 85 in any one given day and navigating, you know, a customer base of 5,000 customers. You know, that's a lot of touch points. And so how to be transparent and communicative and authoritative while at the same time being flexible and open to a perspective that you may not have considered. Um, I would say establishing my legitimacy in the beginning while managing all of these things was the most difficult thing. And um, and yeah, I had a lot of help along the way. I talked to a lot of people, <laughs> got a lot of feedback. I certainly didn't do it on my own. And I, we've got a great team today that um, is really supportive in that as well. So we, we bounce ideas off of each other all the time. We have a very quick um, question from uh, the chat. Oh. Uh, they want... You might have already answered it, actually. They're curious about labor practices among vendors uh, and if that is audited by the market or the government, if you want to give a very quick response. Ooh, this is not really my area of expertise. Um, 
So I, I don't have a lot actually to contribute, unfortunately, in this area. Um, we do not... We do not audit the labor practices of the vendors that attend the market currently. Um, I think primarily because, well, one, we have a very small team. You know, we have four full-time staff to run four markets and all the background stuff. So there is a limitation to what the bandwidth of our team can do. Um, and we've gone through some really big staffing transitions in the last couple of years. So, um, so there's that. And, um, there are, I will say, there are minimum wage ordinances, both in Los Angeles and in the city of Santa Monica, um, city of Santa Monica ordinances being different than the ones in Los Angeles. Um, so in that regard, they are required. There are certain parameters and benchmarks that they have to meet and thresholds, um, but there are requirements for minimum wage for sure. But beyond that, we don't, we don't regulate or investigate any of that. Um, we have about 20 minutes left. Um, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about um, food, the food, the food. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, for all you listeners who haven't been to a farmer's market, especially Santa Monica's farmer's market, we did touch a little bit on this. The produce is just so good. It's so much better than your average grocery store produce. Um, Harry's Berries is... I mean, they're huge right now. They're desserts at Major Domo. Everybody, food bloggers everywhere are like, Harry's Berries. You know, they, they're at Santa Monica Farmer's Markets, right? Yes. They are. They are. They're at three of our four three farmer's of, markets. Yeah. Um, so why, why, for listeners who might not know, why is farmer's market produce and perhaps maybe your produce in particular so much better? Well, I don't know that I can speak to why our produce at the Santa Monica Farmers Markets are so much better <laughs> than other farmers markets in the region um, because I don't know what their practices sure. are specifically and they do have some overlap with our farmers. Um, um, I, I will say that I think the, the primary reason that farmers market produce is better, um, more tasty, more nutritious, uh, is because it's fresher. So when you think about the distribution lines for traditional grocery stores, you're picking, you're packing for transport. So what that means for many products is you're picking it before it's fully ripe because there is a lag time where it is going through either a packing house or it's going to be shipped from the farm in trucks to the grocery store and distributed in large grocery store chains. That means there's also going to probably be a distribution warehouse somewhere between the farm and the grocery store. So there's just so many more touch points that it extends the time. So they're picking greener. <clears throat> In addition to that, um, and then it, certain products if picked green and not tree ripened or plant ripened, aren't gonna ripen in the same way. They're not gonna have the sugar development. Um, they're not having access to the sun. They might be using some sort of chemical or process to ripen the fruit um, or Vegetables, not so much, but fruit. But then the other side of it is the farmers, they're picking usually the day before the market. And what that means is not only is the produce fresher, even given the variety, right? Given the same variety that goes to a grocery store. And some of these farmers, they do distribute to grocery stores. Um, but it's fresher. And so the nutrient value is going to be higher. And they can let it ripen longer. 
So it's going to be at its prime. Now, in addition to that, there are going to be varietals like Harry's berries, <laughs> like the gaviotas, that that produce, that particular berry, and this is similar with some other products as well, so certain varieties of peaches, etc. cetera, um, they're so delicate that they don't have the shelf life to be commercially viable. So they need to be consumed nearly right away. So, so yes, people will ship Harry's berries to New York overnight. Wow. Right? Because it has to be that fresh or to Vegas. And so Harry's berries has gotten a, a huge following for sure. But there are other farmers with similar products mm-hmm. that are equally as special when we, we're starting to get right now into stone fruit season. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody loves stone fruit season. So for those of you who don't know what a stone fruit is, it's any fruit with a pit. So that's going to be peaches, nectarines, cherries, uh, olives are actually a stone fruit. Mm. <clears throat> and so cherry season just started a couple weeks ago. And that's we're, huge it's season. It's a huge season. <laughs> um, and so uh, it'll go about five or six weeks. And we started in, in Bakersfield with the southernmost farm in the northern hemisphere, which is Murray Family Farms. And as the weather starts to change, we start moving up into cherry harvest into the Fresno and um, areas and points north. And then it'll end here, and then there'll be cherry season in the Pacific Northwest, which obviously we're not getting those at the farmer's markets. Um, but that's why you'll see it in the grocery stores longer. And so there are varieties of cherries that either um, haven't haven't been bred for disease resistance, um, and this goes for a variety of other products. Um, so some products are bred for disease resistance and commercial viability, but not flavor. And the farmers have that luxury because they've got that quick turnaround time. They have their hands on the fruit um, that they can pick and bring it to the market, you know, right away. That they can can um, can produce those other varietals that just on a commercial level don't really work. Hmm. Um, yeah, that I I I've only been around for one cherry season, but it's wild. I mean, it's really quick, and I just remember people going crazy over the cherries because it's just a very quick season and the produce is so sweet and and Perfect. Yeah. Um, a lot of this, um, a lot of these products end up at, um, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, at a lot of LA's premier restaurants. Um, and oftentimes the chefs themselves come at what, set eight in the morning? What time do the, all the markets open again? Um, so all of the markets open at one or open at eight and close at one, except for the Sunday market, which opens at eight thirty and closes at one thirty. Okay, so yeah, um, can you talk a little bit about um, your, the Santa Monica Farmers Market's connections with um, some of LA's premier chefs and and just all sorts of restaurants around the Santa Monica area? Yeah, it, it's definitely true. We have a, a large chef following and presence at um, particularly the two downtown Santa Monica markets, which are today, Wednesday and Saturday. And, you know, those are, I would say, respectively 40 and 30 percent wholesale, meaning that it's chef sales and wholesale that's going to be redistributing primarily to restaurants. Um, so, you know, that wasn't always the case. Um I don't know, 20 or so years back, maybe even a little longer, um, 
we started to develop relationships with local chefs. And one of the main chefs that came to the markets was Suzanne Goyne. And she still comes today and has restaurants in Los Angeles. And, um, and a lot of the farmers today work directly with the chefs. So sometimes the chefs will bring them seeds or a seed catalog and say, hey, what is this? I want to try this. And so it's this really nice reciprocal relationship where they partner around a lot of the products that they grow. And, um, <clears throat> and so you do see a, a large spread of farm-to-table movement all throughout Los Angeles and the nation for that matter. Um, you mentioned farm to table. I think farmers markets were, I mean, that's so prevalent now, farm to table, especially in um, escalated dining, I guess you could call it. Um, what, I mean, can you describe um, farmers markets role in sort of that, um, in the creation of that sort of dining scene? Yeah, I think, you know, when I was growing up, as I said, there was a really big focus on processed food. And I think through the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s, you know, that's where the mentality was, is how do we get food out to all these people? How do we preserve it? Um, <clears throat> and what is what is modern food? And at that time, processed food was modern food. And that that's the direction it was going for the modern family that was busy, that, you know, maybe was starting to transition to a, a double income family. Um, and how do you find time to cook? Well, you don't, right? There's processed food, there's TV dinners, et cetera. And, um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's somewhat of that backlash movement to, you know, what is the, the nutritional value of our food? How is that food produced? How is it impacting our environment and our natural world? And what happened from a lot of those practices is the industrialization of the food system. And so this is the opposite, right? This is the slow food movement. Mm -hmm. And this is how do we protect our resources for generations to come? And I think, you know, people started to get more aware and educated and sophisticated about it and then started to taste the difference, right? So, um, so I think there was a really just big natural movement in that direction as a response to what had been before. And, um, and I'm really curious to see what's going to happen in the future, too. Mm -hmm. um, the restaurant that comes to mind, um, to me, at least looking at their menu, is Rustic Canyon. They explicitly say, you know, the farmers. And I think basically, I mean, they're very close to the downtown market, right? Probably all of them, all of those farmers are located at your markets. Have you, do you have a sense of, I don't know, pride or... or or, or do you do you enjoy sitting down at some of those restaurants and seeing and seeing some of your farmers there? A absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, when I go into a restaurant and I see our farmers' names on the menu, it is absolutely a sense of pride. I mean, and there's there's definitely a good handful of them in Santa Monica. You know, Pono Burgers, one of them. You know, we see them sourcing at the market um, or at the Wednesday market in particular. Um, the whole Rustic Canyon group, Rustic Canyon, Milo and Olive, Huckleberry, Cassia, Sweet Rose Creamery, their new restaurant, Milo and Olive Standing Room Only on Pico. Um, they have another venture that's coming into Bergamont Station, not to just plug them, Jeez, but they're, <clears throat> you know, they're, they're, they're a huge 
operation in Santa Monica. And I think, you know, in Santa Monica, we're very proud of them. But that's to say there's also smaller restaurants mm-hmm. that do farm to table. Uh, Manchego on Main Street is one of them. Um, trying to think others off the top of my head, but there, there, are, uh, there are a bunch for sure. And then you get, you know, over to Abbott Kinney where the food scene, scene is also really booming with Felix um, over there. And um, I, I lost my train of thought in the <laughs> question, but because I'm thinking of food. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm we th- like to think of food here. <laughs> um, can you, just a little bit about your personal taste. Um, what are some of your favorite places that you've been to in LA or maybe dream places that you want to go to? Because I, I remember talking with you. You're a little bit of a foodie, right? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. It <laughs> <laughs> could, could be. Um, I do really like the, the Rustic Canyon group for sure. Um, since I do so much cooking from home, I don't eat out there as often because it is a little sure, a little higher on the price point. We can't go there all the time. Yeah. Though. I mean, if I could afford that, <laughs> if, I, if I won the lottery. Um, so let's see. Um you know, I don't get out of Santa Monica very often because, as we know, in Los Angeles, traffic can mm-hmm. be a bear. Um, but there are some of the, the newer restaurants. You ma- mentioned Major Domo. Um, I'm definitely curious. I haven't been there. Bavel. I haven't been to Bavel. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't even been to Bestia. Oh, me neither. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's like a tragedy. Um, well, that reservation's impossible. So. Oh, well, the Bavel reservation is just crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, every time I go on there, it's like <laughs> nothing available for I know. four months. It's just a dream for me. I look on there and go, oh. ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, other restaurants I've been dreaming of. I do. I keep a whole list on Yelp, mm. honestly. I use Yelp a lot um, just for research. I actually don't really read the reviews, I have to admit. <laughs> but I look at a lot of the pictures, and I use Eater LA for a lot of the, the new and upcoming restaurants. Um I know there's one, um, actually, I do have reservations next week at a place on Main Street. They have a Michelin star. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. What's it called? Oh, goodness. It's like an import from somewhere else? No. Or I, they had a Michelin star when they, when it, they the, came? The chef has a Michelin star. Oh, I don't know. I don't know where my brain has gone. but um, That's okay. We'll talk about it. I'll redo some research and find it next okay. uh, next meeting and mention it. <laughs> Be like listener scavenger hunt. I know, right? Exactly. Um, so we're coming onto the wire here. Only a few minutes left. Um, I guess, do you want to talk about maybe why the Sunday market um, is special to you and maybe special for other in other markets? Sure. I mean, I, I really think the Sunday market is one of those entry-level markets. So what I hear from friends and, and just people that I, I talk to a lot of people, as I said, um, is that there are some people that the, they go to the Wednesday market, which has national and international recognition as one of the, the best farmers markets in the world, and they get very overwhelmed. There's up to 85 85 farmers in any given day and they change throughout the season depending on who's growing what and what is being harvested and for someone who maybe doesn't cook a lot um, you know maybe orders in a lot um, I could see how that would be overwhelming and how do you determine what's good and what's a good price point and again what do I do with that weird kohlrabi not to bag on the kohlrabi because <laughs> it's, it's a really good vegetable um, and so I like to think of our, our two, um, the, 
Pico Market on Saturday and the Sunday Market on Main Street as our entry-level markets because they have large community event sections where you can come and you can enjoy the prepared foods. Um, at least at the Sunday Market, there's a little bit of retail. There's a different band every week. There are activities for children and families. There's an area to picnic. We're a block away from the beach. And then there's all these retailers and cool stores on Main Street. And and the Pico Market, even more so for families because it's situated in a park. And so, you know, and you can watch a cooking demonstration. And our, our um, market chef, Kim Vu, is fantastic about teaching you how to shop. She features a specific farmer for every demo. And actually, good timing, mm-hmm. there's a demo this weekend at the Sunday Market, which is at 2640 Main Street. Demos will be at 10, 11, and 12. Free samples, free recipes. You get to meet Kim. You can meet me. I'll be at the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those markets are really a good place to start because it's more than a farmer's market. And then you can kind of ease into it. And again, check out something that you're familiar with. Buy a basket of Harry's Berries <laughs> if you can afford it. <laughs> the, those in particular are pretty pricey. But there are, there are price points all across the board. And um, so that those are my thoughts on Sunday. I do have to say um, on on a sunny Sunday afternoon or morning, it's just there's nothing like being there. There is absolutely nothing like it. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful sense of community. That market's on Main Street and Ocean Park. Yep. Um, Sundays, every Sunday, rain or shine, unless otherwise noted, from 830 to 1. 130. 830 to 130. And we are accessible by the Big Blue Bus System, the Culver Bus System, and the LA Metro. And we also have a free bike valet where you can check your bike in and they'll watch it. And we also have validated parking at the beach, which is located at 2600 Barnard. So lots of options for multimodal transportation. And we hope to see everybody there. Go check it out. It's worth it. Yeah. So if you learned anything today, it's that farmers markets have delicious food. They're good for the environment. They're good for community. They're good for the economy. They're good for you. So you should check it out. Um, thank you so much for being with us today, Jody. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to The Menu on UCLA Radio. We're actually in the middle of our pledge drive. If you enjoyed today's episode... Or any shows on or, radio. Yeah, or any shows on UCLA Radio, please consider donating um, at spark.ucla.edu slash UCLA Radio. Donations are tax deductible. They so. are. Go for it. Do it. Anything helps. Um, We're completely student-run, 100% student-run. It's just us in here. Um, So we need your help. Please consider donating. You can follow us at UCLA Radio uh, on basically every social media. Um, Also, follow Santa Monica Farmers Markets um, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All three social medias. Um... That's it for today's show. Please tune in again next week. Next week's show will actually be Friday at 1 p.m. where we'll be interviewing a journalist from the food section of LA's Time Out magazine. So make sure to tune in next week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye-bye.